Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the What Really Happened interview series this podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. I'm your humble host, Andrew Jenks. Uh, so humble, in fact, that I'll let you know you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Andrew Jenks. So let's get to the point here. After season two of What Really Happened, I looked up at my producer, who I'm looking at now, Chris the producer, Flannery, and I said to him, we really need to talk to a linguist. After all, you know, if you think about it, so much of history comes down to how people documented or articulated what happened. And this documentation obviously comes from people from different countries, different languages, different societies, different cultures within these countries. And so I was doing some searching around about linguists and and I, I came across this TED talk. It's called How Language Shapes the Way We Think by Lara Borditsky. And I, I mean, like, was just hooked. Uh, It's an incredible TED Talk, and apparently I'm not the only one. It was the most popular TED Talk of 2018. So so, some quick background before we get into the conversation with Lara. She's an associate professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego, and editor-in-chief of Frontiers in Cultural Psychology, She previously served on the faculty at some little-known schools, uh, MIT, Stanford, and her research is generally on the relationships between mind, world, and language, or how humans get so smart. Uh, She's won, to make a very, very long list short, a ton of awards for her mind, which is pretty cool. When I asked her to come on and re-end the conversation on this topic, Lyra had probably the best response yet to, to someone when I when I track them down and see if they'll be on the podcast. She said she'd be glad to and wondered if by coming on, she'd get a piggyback ride from our producer, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Of course, I said I'd try. Here's the interview. What's up, Lyra? How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? How's California? wonderful. We've recovered from two long weeks of winter, so things are looking up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is <laughs> winter? What is winter? What does that mean? It was like 70 degrees. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up in the former Soviet Union in Belarus. Wow. And then what brought your parents came to the States at a certain point? or? Yeah, my parents and I came as refugees from uh, Belarus and moved to Chicago. How old were you when that happened? I was 12. Wow. 
So thanks a lot for for taking the time here. I, I, I know you're very busy. I know you've listened to some of the episodes, which I'm quite honored by and somewhat worried about, seeing as I can already be quite insecure about my work, much less when a cognitive scientist is, is listening. Um, with, mm-hmm. all that, with all that said, I'd love to know, just maybe taking a step back a bit and after watching your different talks and, and reading, trying to read some of the material, how did you get into this field? Like, what did your parents do? At what point did you start to hone in on this line of work? Well, I was always a, a nerdy kid and a very argumentative kid. Um, <laughs> and so I uh, would try to get into big debates with people about what is justice and what is freedom and things like that. And I started noticing that a lot of those disagreements were happening because we would use words in different ways, and a word like justice or freedom could be used in lots of different ways, and so you mean one thing by it, and I mean another thing by it, and we can't understand why we're coming to such different conclusions. And so it made me think that um, somewhere in language lied uh, an, an important resolution to a lot of these questions about truth and justice and so on. Hmm. Uh, and another part of me just really loved science and wanted to answer deep philosophical questions, but in a very rigorous way. And so uh, when I was heading to college, I decided that I would invent cognitive science. I would major in philosophy and in chemistry and try to meet them in the middle and come Hmm. up against a scientific understanding of mind. And I was so uh, bummed when I looked at the course catalog and realized that cognitive science had already been invented. Uh, I'd been scooped. Um, so then just had to major in it one step at a time. That's incredible. And, and so what, did you, what line of work were your parents in? My parents are both engineers. Uh, so you got, that, you got that, that smart gene going on. Yeah, their biggest complaint about me as a kid is that, that I wouldn't stop asking them for more math problems to solve. Wow. That's their, they're like, you were such a terrible child. Right. You just kept b- bugging us for more math problems. <laughs> um, so you said you had a chance to, to listen to, the, to, to some of the episodes, which, again, I'm, I'm sincerely grateful for. Is there, is there something in particular uh, that caught your attention and, and uh Certainly, be as as candid as you'd like. I don't have much of too much of an ego. I think in this, if there's anything that struck you um, bad, good, anywhere in between, non non judgmental, I'm I'm certainly curious. Well, I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing your take, and I think the one common theme that emerged for me is the power of framing of experience or framing of people's behavior. That the same behavior performed by two different people can be described in such different ways and Mm. then perceived and judged um, and punished Mm. in such different ways. So uh, maybe the example that's most fresh for me in mind is comparing um, Serena Williams to John McEnroe, Mm -hmm. uh, where the same kind of uh, emotional display uh, gets um, talked about in such different ways and then has such different consequences. And that's uh, very closely related to what I work on, where uh, we all believe we perceive reality. We all believe that we see things, and then we can judge them fairly and objectively, and we see exactly what happened. And we uh, completely underestimate how much... Um, of any perceived experience needs to be construed and constructed by your brain and how much of it is also constructed by other people and 
the way they talk about things, the structures that exist in language to talk about things, all of those social constructs really filter our experience. So what we're seeing is not really reality. What we're seeing is this very complex, intricate construction. Mm. Let me give you an example. Uh, we did a study. Um, this was a while ago. This is the original wardrobe malfunction um, at the Super Bowl, mm. I think, in 2004. Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake performed together. Yeah, of course, yeah. And uh, in that... Uh, I say it was the original wardrobe malfunction because that's how the term wardrobe malfunction entered the English language. <laughs> there weren't wardrobe malfunctions before, but Justin Timberlake used that term in his apology. Really? And so since then, lots and lots of people started uh, apologizing for wardrobe malfunctions. So is that like, a, is that a, that's, that was, you're saying that was not a term beforehand and now it's a term is it even it's not yeah, it's not like in the dictionary or something though because there's two separate words i think it did i think it did get entered into a dictionary at some point i yeah. think uh yeah a few years afterwards uh maybe it became popular enough uh certainly the frequency of the use of that term went from uh just about zero to right. millions of uses um because he said he apologized for the wardrobe malfunction it was I think he said it was not intentional and is regrettable or something like that. Right. How does the um, this is a quick quick sidebar, but how does mm-hmm. the, how does it work where the the dictionary is seems to be adjusting to uh, what we're saying what how we're using words. In other in other in other ways like I I've I read maybe a year ago or so that uh literally no longer has to mean literally because people have been overusing literally to the point that it's lost its meaning. Shouldn't it work right. the other way around where we kind mm-hmm. of we go back to understanding what the intention was of the word in the first place? Well, if we did do that, languages wouldn't change and grow, right? So hmm. if I insisted right now that we should only use words in the way that they were used 300 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, well, 1,000 years ago, it's not even a recognizable language to right. modern English speakers, right? So um, that's just not how natural languages work. Languages are living things. We're always changing them to suit our needs. They're tools that humans invent, after all. They're not um, written in stone. Mm. And so dictionaries, for a while, dictionaries were more prescriptivist in that they were trying to tell you what was right and was not right. Mm-hmm. But I think they've shifted to be more descriptivist in a sense that they're trying to reflect what the language actually is. Hmm. And there are lots and lots of examples of this through history. So, uh, for example, um, a word like awful now means terrible. Hmm. Um, uh, But uh, originally it was um, meant as something that would fill you with awe, right? It was wonderful. I see. Uh, At some point over time it shifts. Uh, meaning, and uh, I think any reasonable person would have to accept that <laughs> it's fine, right? As mm. long as communication has been achieved, mm. you know what the person means. That's really the goal of using language. Um, we're constantly uh, here. Here's the, the here's the problem at the base of it. Yeah. There's an infinite possible set of things we want to talk about, an ever expanding set of things we want to talk about, because mm. we live in a complex, dynamic really fast-changing world, and we're constantly inventing new things to talk about, too. So there's an infinite set of things to talk about, but there's a finite set of words, 
And so, in fact, every time you use a word, you're slightly stretching its meaning, you're slightly using it in some new context. And some of those stretches are bigger uh, than others. Uh, But we need those stretches. We need those new uses. Uh, Otherwise, the language isn't serving our purpose, which is to communicate about the really rich set of experiences that we're talking about. And and, um, I apologize. And you were uh, talking about before I got off on on my frustration with literally about uh, mm-hmm. wardrobe malfunction and and the and Justin Timberlake and and how he kind of introduced that. Right. So uh, the reason uh, I, I got interested in that particular example is that it was a really famous accident, and it was a an accident, uh, maybe an accident. It was an event, a very famous event. Mm. Um, that was videotaped so people could examine the evidence with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And it was um, very uh, uh, heavily discussed. Uh, I think the weekend after it happened, it became the most TiVo'd uh, event ever. Uh, I assume because people were just so outraged they had to watch it over and over again. Sure. Um, uh, and so uh, that made a really good experimental <laughs> set of materials for us because we could show the video to people and give them uh, a couple of different descriptions. So we, we could either say, and here in this final dance move, he ripped the costume, or here in this final dance move, the costume ripped. And uh, then we can ask uh, how much is Timberlake to blame, how much of the fifth $550,000 that uh, the FCC tried to find CBS for this, uh, should he pay? And what we found was that even though people could look at the video with their own eyes, some had seen it many times before, if we said he ripped the costume, they would ask for 53% more in fines, and they would blame him more. Um, and all of us, meanwhile, have this sense that, you know, we can just go to the tape. We even have that expression. Let's go to the tape. Right. Because you think if we can go to the video, we can see the video, we'll see reality with our eyes. But that's not actually how we arrive at our judgments and how we arrive at um, how we're going to think about someone, how we're going to decide to blame and punish them. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into understanding what happened in an event that goes beyond a particular set of pixels that get activated on the retina from watching a video. You really have to do a lot of work to make meaning of it. And part of what helps you make meaning is how you would talk about it or how other people would talk about it. It kind of goes a little bit into um, what you, you speak about uh, with the vases. And if a vase uh, falls... Or, or someone um, bumps into a vase, uh, some people from certain countries would say that person broke the vase and people from other countries would say uh, the vase was broken. Or, or another example I like that you use um, is the when someone breaks your, when, when I break my arm, I think you were saying we're a unique language in that we say I broke my arm opposed to the arm was broken. Is that, is that right? Yeah, in some languages you can't use that construction. You can't say something like "I broke my arm" unless you're a lunatic and you right. uh, went out looking to break your arm and you succeeded. Right. Um, in a lot of languages, you'd have to say something like "My arm got broken," or "To me, it happened that my arm broke," or something like that. 
marking that it was not intentional. Um, whereas in English, we're kind of more promiscuous. We can use uh, expressions like, I broke my arm, I lost the library book, I broke the vase, even in cases when it's uh, clearly an accident. Um, and what we find is that English speakers, because they tend to talk about people doing things, are really good at remembering who did it, even if it's an accident. But um, if you ask, can you remember if it's an accident, then speakers of other languages uh, are actually better. So speakers of Spanish, for example, would be better at remembering whether something was an intentional action, even if they're not as good at remembering who did it if mm. it's an accident. So you have two groups of people who look at exactly the same event, uh, witness the same crime against a vase or a balloon or something, uh, and then end up remembering different things from that event because of the habits of the language that they speak. And uh, Lara, is there is 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 language a you know it's interesting we did a we did a piece this year on uh, Native Americans and uh, uh, specifically I should say uh, Northern Cheyenne and this this one uh, woman Buffalo Calf Road woman who also went by Brave Woman and I got to know a little bit I mean a little bit about that that world, that subculture and, and particularly what they were like in, in kind of the 1860s and um, didn't realize that they didn't have a written form of communication. And so it was, their history was recorded through pictures, um, drawings and or uh, oral history. And it got me thinking overall, not just with history, but in general, whether or not language is is a is a good system for even communicating are there are there better ways out there that that exist i have no idea if this if this really makes much sense but are there better ways that we can be communicating outside of of language um i think is my question well, language is certainly a highly imperfect way of communicating, but it's mm. the best one we have. It's like democracy. So, uh, um, do you, you mean we can communicate ideas like democracy? Or oh no, no, I was, it was my attempt at a joke. It was uh, there's a uh, Churchill quote that oh, democracy yes, no, is the worst yes. form of government, except for yes. all the others. Well, language is not the worst form of communication. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's really the best one we have. You, you know, before language. Um, we could pass on information through our genes. So mm. that's, a, that's a, a way of communicating. You don't get a lot of, um, you know, some people would say it's more fun, but uh, it's uh, certainly the timescale is very different, which mm -hmm. you can pass on information, and you don't get a lot of choice about what kind of information you pass on. Mm. Um, and so once uh, humans end up with all of these incredibly rich communication systems that we have in language, the amount of cultural uh, growth uh, just ratchets incredibly, just mm. the, the amount of things that we can invent and pass on to others. And once you build in a cultural practice into language, it usually will stick around for a long time, even if people don't know why exactly they're doing it. So uh, take the example of grammatical gender in say, European languages, that where every noun is masculine or feminine. Um, once you have that system set in the language, 
uh, if you're going to learn Spanish or German as your native language, you're going to have to learn those genders. You're not going to have a lot of choice about whether you practice them or not. You can't just say, well, I'm going to speak French, but I'm not going to use gender, <laughs> right? right? No one will treat you like a, a real speaker of the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it becomes this universal distribution method for ideas and structures that everyone must follow to some extent. I've done a few things in the criminal justice world, and I've, I've oftentimes, you know, you get a lot of people giving statements about what happened. And mm-hmm. I've always in my mind, and it's uh, kind of using my imagination quite a bit, but I've always wondered what, what would happen if someone... Two, two people who spoke totally different languages uh, were describing what happened, and they're both describing it um, precise, yes, precisely and, and accurately, but because of the language, it, the result is almost two, different, two entirely different things or, or events. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that, if you've ever come across that or some form of what I'm saying in the work that you do. Yeah, there are actually some really interesting analyses of court cases where testimony is given through a translator. So, uh, Mm. for example, if you have a Spanish-speaking defendant being tried in an English-speaking court in the U.S., um, here's uh, one example. The guy's being tried for murder. Uh, the situation is uh, he and his girlfriend had an argument, and at the beginning of the incident, they're standing at the top of the stairs, and he's holding her in his arms. And at the end of the incident, uh, she is at the bottom of the stairs, and um, the fall kills her. And so what the prosecutor, of course, is trying to figure out is what happened in between and whether he... Uh, accidentally dropped her or whether he threw her down the stairs. Uh, and so he poses the question to the defendant. Uh, and so he says, so did she fall or did you drop her? So he makes a contrast between is it mm. uh, accidental or did you drop her, which in English actually can be both intentional or accidental, but in the contrast, it, it's clearly uh, right. meant to be um Intentional. intentional yeah. uh, the translator asks, asks him uh, in Spanish, and uh, the guy says, uh, yes, se me cayó, which is, to me, it happened that she fell, uh, which clearly says it was accidental. Uh, and the translator comes back and says, yes, I dropped her, which takes the other, me- <laughs> the other meaning of drop mm. in English, uh, uh, which is what the prosecutor proposed as intentional. So here, a prosecutor very clearly asked the person, was it intentional or was it accidental? And because of the mismatch between the two languages, the answer comes back exactly the opposite of what the guy intended. Um, so uh, there are cases like that where you would take a very different meaning or a very different conclusion based on what is being said uh, in a particular context. Are there, are there certain languages that do a, a better job than others? I, I don't. I mean, I, don't, I guess better is, is tricky, but uh, in describing emotions or sensations, sensations, is there a language you've come across where where it just seems like wow, they're very precise in 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 how they're there's many different forms of 
happiness. Uh, it reminds me of kind mm. of, of, I think, in one of your talks, you talk about, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think in Russian, there's sort of very different forms of blue. So we say blue, and for them, mm -hmm. there's they have like, I think at least it was four different types of blue. Uh, there are two, yeah, light blue and dark blue. Mm -hmm. Oh, two. I really went for mm -hmm. it there. So, um, <laughs> so uh, it, it, has that? Does that come across in 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 the in the research you've done? Uh, languages differ in uh, the kind, the size of the vocabularies and the kinds of discriminations they make around all kinds of things. Uh, one of my favorite recent examples comes from the work of Asifa Majid, and she's been studying terms for smell across languages. And for a really long time, we believed that people just weren't very good at describing smells. We just don't, don't have a very good smell-dedicated vocabulary. So in English, it's hard even to think about specific smell terms that aren't just names of things that you might smell, like not words like banana, that smells like a banana, but mm. like pungent or fragrant. You know, there are very few words like that and they're not very commonly used. Um, and people argued that this had something to do with a limitation of the sensory system that humans have, that in general, it should be true that languages wouldn't be good at describing smells. But actually, Asafa has found um, all these language groups that have wonderful smell vocabularies and can describe smells with uh, many terms dedicated to smell have uh, much better ability to match smells and to remember smells. Uh, typically, hunter-gatherers uh, have a better smell vocabulary hmm. uh, compared, for example, to a color vocabulary that seems more developed in industrialized countries. Um, and so uh, there, there are these wonderful differences that you can see across languages and what people tend to focus on. But language is always going to be underpowered for describing internal states um, uh, and certainly describing what we call qualia or kind of qualitative experience. Wittgenstein gives this example that makes this very clear. He asks, you know, if, if I ask you what is the height of Mount Kilimanjaro, that's mm. a question that you can answer very easily in language. If you just know the precise number, you can give that. Um, but if I ask you, what does a clarinet sound like? Mm. <laughs> it's really hard to answer in language. Right. Um, unless you already know what a clarinet sounds like, uh, it's going to be really hard for me to say something useful that would be, really help you imagine it in your mind, recognize it. With technology kind of changing at the at the rate that it is, um, I'm thinking of just texting specifically. Uh, is that changing the way that we use use language? I mean, it must it must be. I think it's uh, one. So the first thing that texting is doing is giving people a way of writing more the way that they speak. I see. So um, earlier you mentioned there's a language that you, you were um, working with that didn't have a written form, and that's actually very common uh, around the world. Uh, a lot of languages don't have indigenous written forms. It's very common to not have a written form. Uh, the other thing that's quite common is to have a written form that's quite different from the spoken form. So uh, uh, languages like Arabic, for example, have this property where there's a classic Arabic Mm. that is written a particular way. And then there are all these spoken varieties of Arabic that diverge wildly from that classic written form. And so uh, for a lot of varieties of Arabic, if you both speak 
that variety of Arabic and you also read written Arabic, you're basically bilingual because uh, the two forms are just completely different. Oh, wow. Uh, English is pretty close between the written and the spoken, but still almost none of us actually talk the way that we write, uh, uh, the way that we're supposed to write in long form, at least, the way you would write an essay. But what texting allows you to do is write more like you actually talk. So uh, what it's doing is it's causing many more people to write because that, you know, they're doing this fast communication. And so many more people are writing, and they're writing in a way that's a lot more like spoken language than like written language. And the reason it annoys a lot of people is that they want to treat it as if it's um, written language, uh, and it should follow written conventions. But spoken language doesn't follow those conventions, and so texting is really a lot more like spoken language. Hmm. You know, I... I um I thought of you the other day because I, I saw that movie Vice. I don't know if, if you've if you've checked it out, but they, I haven't seen it. No, they they do uh, they do a quick thing, and and it's you know obviously based on Cheney, but whether or not um, this this part is true or not, I'm not sure. But he worked with this guy Frank Lutz, I think his name is, and yeah. they they get into. Um, and I remember the audience did like a ooh when when they when this is revealed, but he decides. Uh, through a focus group that he wants to change the name of global warning, uh, global warming to climate change. And, um, and I, I'm curious, do you just, I don't know, when you're reading the news, is, is it tough for, are you kind of always thinking of different ways that we can frame things seeing as that's your line, your line of work. And are there examples of that out there that you're always kind of, um, I don't know, curious about or, or thinking, boy, if we, if we sort of said this word differently, uh, we, it would change the way we think about it? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the way we talk about anything that's complex, any complex social issue or physical phenomena is suffused with metaphor. So you can't talk about the economy without metaphor. We talk about hmm. jump-starting the economy, uh, putting more gas in the tank of the economy, mm. um, propping up the economy. There are all of these different terms where we're borrowing or getting the economy back on track. Right. Uh, we're borrowing from our understanding of basic things in the physical world, like how cars work, how trains work, <laughs> right. how physical support works, um, and then using those metaphors to talk about the economy. And it's not just the economy. It's just about anything that's abstract or complex. Hmm. We talk about love and relationships that way. We talk about war that way. Um, we talk about crime that way. Um, God, so uh, we really probably use metaphors. Things. Sorry to interrupt. I guess we use metaphors a lot more than, than we realize, at least I realize. Uh, yeah. A really fun exercise that I give my students is I bring in a random front page of the New York times hmm. and I say, okay, we're going to sit down. We're going to underline everything that's a metaphor in this first article huh. and you start doing it. And uh, very quickly you start thinking, Oh my God, I can't tell anymore actually what is or isn't a metaphor because every single sentence seems to be metaphorical. Wow. Um, coming back to this um, point that I made earlier that we have a finite set of words and we have an infinite set of things to talk about. So an infinite set of potential uses. So languages naturally always take uh our language about the familiar and extended to talk about things that are harder to talk about, harder to understand. And 
when we're talking about something like the economy, almost everyone who ever says anything about the economy, because the economy is so complex, they don't really understand how the thing that they're talking about works. It's too complex for any individual human mind to fully understand. And so we must do something to reduce the complexity. We must uh, take some small perspective, take a little frame. And so that's why these metaphors are so useful as they allow even, uh, you know, everyday nincompoops like me to say things about the economy that sound uh, somewhat reasonable and you can build an argument around it uh, because it's taking more basic knowledge that I have maybe about cars or rail travel or uh, physical support being needed to stand something up, and then I can extend that knowledge to try to make inferences about the economy. Now, any frame that you choose, let's say we say we need to jumpstart the economy. That's why we need a stimulus plan. Mm. Well, that frame is going to highlight something and then hide others or mislead us on others, right? So if we believe that the problem with the economy is that it just needs a, a short-term burst of energy and then every, you know, once we jumpstart it the way you jumpstart a car, everything will be fine, then it's an apt metaphor. But if there are structural problems within the economy that need to be addressed over a long period of time, then it's a bad metaphor, right? Hmm. And uh, it actually leads us down the wrong path of thinking about what needs needs to be done. And so we focus on the short term rather than saying we can make a long-term plan for rehabilitation, mm. thinking about it more as a sick patient that will require long-term care or something like that. Mm. And uh, in my lab, we do a lot of work like this, looking at how different metaphors for crime or for dealing with hardship lead people to make different decisions about how we should deal with them. So, yeah, so when I think about, when I read the news, when I hear these things, of course, I'm thinking about how these frames are leading us to think one way or another. Metaphors are unavoidable, but uh, having an awareness of them, being aware of how they're structuring their thinking is really useful because then it gives you the power to potentially reject ones that are troublesome or that may be leading you in the wrong direction. The metaphors right now that I think are most troubling are all the ways that we talk about uh, foreigners or immigrants, uh, and this is a kind of a, com a sadly common pattern in history is that uh, we talk about other humans uh, using non-human metaphors. So uh, immigrants historically have been described as vermin or as um, kind of infestations or disease agents. Um, and it's not just in these very blatant ways that we, you know, if someone says these people are animals, it's easy to hear that metaphor and reject it and say, oh, I don't think that's right. But often, uh, the metaphors will sneak in, uh, in other forms. Like we'd say the people scurrying across the border. Well, what kinds of things scurry? Huh. <laughs> you know, there's only right. a small set of things that scurry. But in the moment when you hear that, you may not realize that this is planting an idea in your mind, an image in your mind that is leading you down a path of thinking of uh, these people as somehow less than human. Uh, and that makes it easier to make policies that are dehumanizing, that don't treat uh, people with basic, basic dignity, no respect, don't afford them basic freedoms or basic comforts. Um, and so... Uh, those are the those are the kinds of things I think about when I read the news. Is how are these frames sneaking into the kinds of policies that we make, but also the kinds of 
things that we allow to happen uh, on our behalf because we're thinking about it in a particular narrow frame. Something that I've always, uh, it's gotten on my nerves quite a bit is, is when we talk about mental health and, uh, and, uh, I don't know how familiar how familiar you are with with the DS uh, DSM five, um, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's not just it just kind of still really honestly does surprise me, and this is obviously an, an opinion, but how it feels like we're still really uh, and I, I'm here we go with metaphors kind of behind the behind the game uh, when it comes to articulating uh, depression, um, bipolar one, bipolar two. And, uh, and I've, I've just wonder if, and you know, you go to certain mental health conferences and they, they get into the weeds on it, but when, as, as, as they should, but when, when we talk about it um, amongst friends, you know, you can have someone who really, who suffers from chronic depression, but will, this is kind of the obvious easy example, but someone will still say, oh yeah, I was feeling depressed earlier. And they're two wildly different things. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I was just curious if, and I've kind of looked into it and I thought, well, maybe for most people when, when talking about chronic depression, it, the word could be dysthymia. Uh, and I'm curious if, if you've explored that topic at all. Have you read, there's a, this book called Crazy Like Us. Um, I think you would really enjoy it. It talks about uh, the exportation of uh, categories from the DSM-5, or I think it was the DSM-4 at the time, mm-hmm. across huh. the world. So the way we take Western uh, psychiatric ideas and categories, treat them as if they are God-given, as if they are universal uh uh, set in stone categories, and then travel around the world, telling people that they have this category of thing, or that category of thing, where their circumstances might be completely different, their own understanding of their mind might be uh, completely different, and so these categories just may not fit at all with um, the experience that people have. I, I think you'll really enjoy it. Oh wow! One really interesting case he describes um, is the case of antidepressants in Japan. Uh-huh. So when Prozac wanted to expand into other markets, they had to figure out how to get people to want to buy uh, antidepressants. And in some languages, there isn't a word uh, for depression that um, can be used for you know cases that are kind of milder, right? So there's a there was a word for depression in Japanese, but it was the kind that you had to be hospitalized for. Mm. Uh, immediately, right? So it was very severe. And then, um, so they thought about what what would make it more acceptable to say that I have this thing that requires medication. And so they invented this phrase that it's it's like your soul has a cold. And so uh, huh. it's not as serious as the kind of depression that the Japanese had a word for, but of course, when you have a cold, it's perfectly acceptable to take medication. Right. Uh, and so Prozac became the thing that you take when your soul has a cold. No way. And uh, it became hugely popular. And uh, cases of reported and diagnosed depression skyrocket in Japan following this marketing campaign. 
uh, and it raises a really interesting question. Is it the case that uh, people start to recognize a collection of symptoms and distress in themselves and uh, take it more seriously and go and report it to a doctor, and that's why cases of depression are skyrocketing in Japan? Mm. Or is it the, the, the... suggestion that whatever distress that you might be experiencing, and of course all of us experience distress, uh, could be cured by a pill. And so lots and lots of people then go and get the pill. And so you're kind of artificially creating a market for a product uh, where your product may not actually be helpful for most of the people who take it. Uh, But you kind of take a natural experience that everyone has, that everyone feels down sometimes, everyone feels distressed sometimes. uh, And you're telling people we have a a chemical solution for it. It's a very, it's a very interesting thing to think about. Um, hmm. Of course, we don't know, uh, uh, we don't know which which way to interpret it. But it's interesting to think about how a new, a new product can come into a, a culture and change the way that people talk about things and right. uh, change the, the way people experience their own their own sense uh, sense of well being. And, uh, you know, across time, people have experienced distress in lots and lots of different ways. So um, the common thing that people know about is hysteria, right? So it used to be, uh, like, in Victorian times, a lot of women were diagnosed with hysteria. (laughs) There's no longer hysteria around. Uh, But instead, we have lots of other ways that uh, distress manifests itself. And so... It's interesting to think about both across cultures and across time, the way that people express the distress that they feel. Usually it falls along lines that are already available in the culture. Mm -hmm. So if uh, one of the ways that you can express the the internal distress that you feel is by um, being overly controlling about your eating, uh, then uh, eating disorders become a lot more common when that's a commonly available thing in your culture. And in other cultures, like for example, in Japan or in Korea, once uh, there is a famous case of uh, anorexia or bulimia, all of a sudden, all uh, kinds of other cases become very, very common. Um, And it's not, of course, that um, women didn't experience distress before, they just didn't uh, express it in that way. It gives a, another avenue for expressing and experience, publicly experiencing the distress that you have. Um, anyway, I think I think you'll really you'll really get a lot out of that book. It's really fun. Yeah, no, I got it here and, on Amazon. What's something that that you're working on now that you can that you can speak to um, that uh, is you know really has you excited? Hmm. Uh, one thing that I'm always trying to understand is um, how much you can change how people think by changing how they talk. And so, uh, for example, if you teach people new metaphors for talking about time, uh, does that create new mental timelines in their mind that they can use? Mm. And then once those get built up through language, what, uh, uh, what can be done to destroy them or take them away. So kind of how robust are things that, that you learn through language. And what we're finding is that it's actually really quite easy to change how people think by giving them new ways of talking. Hmm. Uh, and also that language can act as a formative force. So uh, As a formative in, force, okay. Force, 
let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, one possibility about how language shapes thought is maybe that as you're thinking about things, you're also talking to yourself inside your mind. And so both linguistic and non-linguistic processes are going on at the same time. And so the reason that you think in ways that align with patterns in your language is that you're always just kind of talking to yourself inside your mind. Right? So that's one possibility. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there's lots and lots of evidence that that, in fact, happens, that there's a lot of language that we gener- generate inside our minds. And if you stop people from being able to generate language, it really can change their behavior. But another possibility for how language could uh, uh, change our thinking or shape our thinking is that it can information that comes in through language can become part of your non-linguistic uh, set of ideas, that it can exist then outside of language. You don't even have to generate any language in the moment. You don't have to be talking out loud or inside your mind. You just now have this idea. It could be a a diagram that you have stored in your mind or any other kind of format of representation. So it has formed a new set of thoughts that will continue to live even if you switch languages or you don't use language at all. And uh, what we're finding is that language can have that kind of effect as well. There's like a sorry to sorry to interrupt. Like a set of values or or principles. I'm, so, try, I'm trying to better understand. Yeah. So the the kinds of things we can do in the lab are relatively simple things. Like um, I might teach you to say things like Monday is above Tuesday, Tuesday is above Wednesday, Wednesday is above Thursday. Mm-hmm. So I'm teaching you a vertical timeline where earlier things are above and later things are below. That's not the way English normally talks about it. Or I can teach you the opposite, that Monday is below Tuesday and Tuesday is below Wednesday and so on. Um, and then I can uh, test and see if, in fact, you're in your mind using a vertical timeline and I can then try to stress, stress it out and see um, uh, if uh, I can get you to stop using a vertical timeline if I disrupt your ability to use language or if I disrupt your ability to uh, use your spatial resources. Um, and what we find is that once you've established this possibility of thinking about time vertically, taking language away no longer disrupts it. Uh, that language can really implant ideas that will continue to live outside of the linguistic system. Hmm. Uh, so it can really form, form thoughts that will feel to you like you're just seeing things as they are and mm. you won't be able to trace it back to what's the source of this? Why is it that I see the world the way that it is? Got it. Uh, it just seems like, oh, this is just how the world is. Now right. I, have, I have this idea. It seems natural in my mind. Huh. Incredible. That's so cool. Um, well, this has been uh, amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I'm kind of going through a list of uh, questions here. Do you think there's anything in, in high school that we should be teaching uh, young people that, that would help us uh, communicate better or, or use language in a more effective way? Yes. You know, I, uh, I'm so glad you asked that because I have this secret dream of um, making a high school class that's specifically about linguistic and cognitive and cultural diversity. Hmm. That um, learning how other languages do things and how people around the world do things can open up so many possibilities in your mind that right. we, all take, we all take the structures of our languages for granted. We, see, we think falsely that they reflect the structure of reality. Yeah. And 
languages give us a lot of information. I mean, they make us incredibly smart. We inherit so much good stuff through language. But they also reduce cognitive entropy. What I mean by that is our minds are actually capable of thinking about things in so many different ways. You know, there's 7,000 different languages in the world. Um, And so human minds have invented all of these ingenious ways of constructing perceived reality. But most of us only ever get to experience one or two of them uh, because of our own linguistic experience. And just to learn... People often recommend learning other languages as a way of broadening your mind, and that's that's wonderful. But it's also extremely labor intensive, <laughs> you know. And uh, it's um, the real payoff of learning another language is always that you get to actually speak that language, mm. talk to all those people, and you know, pick up that beautiful stranger in the piazza, uh, <laughs> and drop into those conversations. You know, sure. those are the real benefits of speaking another language. Right. Um, but learning about other languages and learning about other ways of structuring experience, uh, I think, can be extremely uh, mind-opening and can lead to a lot of creativity and a lot of thinking in ways that are so much broader, where you're inheriting not just the cognitive work of the folks in your cultural lineage, mm. but also the, all of the cognitive work that was done by people in other cultures who've found different, useful, interesting ways of structuring the world. So I would love to have uh, that as part of a high school curriculum where you learn about the relationship between language and reality, how tenuous it is. Uh, right, you, can yeah. become, you, you can become more mindful about how the way that things are framed in our culture uh, are shaping the way that we think, how the metaphors and frames that politicians and lawyers use, for example, are meant to lead you to think in particular ways and how you can be more mindful about them yourself. And you can also learn about all of the different ways that are available and possible to think and maybe then be creative in coming up with new ways uh, of thinking. Going back to the uh, point we made earlier that languages are living things. They're tools right. that we shape to suit our needs. Uh, if you're the more aware you are of the role that language is playing in your own thinking, the more proactive you can be about the kinds of ideas you want to create and the kinds of ideas you want to proliferate. Um, and so I think it, it would really be wonderful to get people thinking about that early. Yeah, especially this day and age with just information everywhere and everyone has an opinion and, uh, it'd be really important. Well, if there's anything I can do to, to, to get that high school class going, let me know. Yeah, if you have, uh, if, if you come across uh, people who are designing curricula or I don't, you know. Arnie Duncan. You've got to track down Arnie Duncan, see what he's up to. Yeah, I just, I just think it would be so much fun. I, you know, I know that like stuff that I've written gets assigned in high schools and uh, kids love it and it's very gratifying to me, but then I think they're really, sh- like I really wish I'd had um yeah, a class where someone said, you know, these things can be done lots of different ways, and look at all these different cool things that humans around the world do. Yeah, um, and it can help. Like it just ties in because language is used across so many domains. Like it can help you learn math because math is so different in different languages. It can help you <laughs> understand navigation and you know, all of these basic things uh, get tied in with language. It just I think it would be a great integrative 
experience. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, since that's for real what I was kind of astonished by when watching and reading some of your stuff was just like, man, well, I can't believe in high school I spent so much time learning calculus and, and um, it's a whole other thing, but I just get, my mind is kind of boggled by the things that I was being taught. You don't think to, that calculus is good for the soul? No, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I, don't I really don't. Is there an argument for that? Well, oh, there I is. Mean, everyone who everyone who has uh, learned calculus and taught it to other people then argues that it's good for the soul. But I learned calculus. Um, I don't. I don't. And I don't. I don't. Re- <laughs> I don't remember it either. But well, the kind of math that you learn in different stages uh, reflects what society thinks are most useful skills. So, like calculus is really Cold War math. So if you're going to go into uh, engineering and physics of particular kind uh, at that time, calculus was the first necessary stepping stone. Right now, if you were just trying to maximize efficiency, you would skip calculus and just learn a lot of statistics. Hmm. And some curricula are changing that way, but curricula are really slow to change. But probably in the next 20 years, there's going to be a lot less calculus and a lot more statistics. So, So you can do the kind of math that's most useful in the modern world. But still, the argument will be even if you're not going to use it yourself, it's good for the soul. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. Was is there anything else that you had thought of going into this, or that I missed, or or I mean, that, I really appreciate it. That was all fascinating and 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 great. That was really fun talking to you. I look, I look forward to that piggyback ride. Yes, the request is in to to Dwayne Johnson. That that was an original. That one I've never heard before. I thought I heard. I've heard a lot, people- but I've never heard that one. <laughs> I assume people just think that it comes standard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, I it's part of the deal. Yeah, they just like they don't even think they need to ask. Right. Oh, I see. Oh, I see that. Like it's... you know, when you buy a car, you assume there's going to be a steering wheel. Right. Right. Like, well, of course, I don't need to ask if there's going to be a piggyback ride. That's great. Oh, that's good. Naturally. Maybe maybe in certain languages, that's what's that's part of the that's part of the response is hi, how are you? I just had mm-hmm. something piggyback ride, and then the answer. Yeah. All right. Well, I I will keep you posted if if he responds <laughs> on on the piggyback ride. I've seen crazier things, so you never know. 